You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries he has excited to complete the works of death for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world on the high seas, to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of the friends and brethren, for taking away our charters. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coast, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. We all know the famous lines from the Declaration of Independence. When, in the course of human events, we hold these truths to be self-evident, for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we know this part of the Declaration. But it's just a small part of the document. And the rest of the document goes like this. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And these facts, the listing, are called the grievances. Some of them seem anachronistic, you know, some of them don't seem to apply. But if you read them, I think you can gain, I think you can gain from them a better understanding of how the American government was set up, why we are who we are even today. I'm very pleased on the show today to have Tim Patrick, who is a listener to the program, and he is the author of Self-Evident, The Ideas and Events That Made the Declaration Possible. Tim, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. The idea I like about your book is that you can just sit down and learn the topic in one afternoon. It's designed that way. But you go over the declaration and do it not line by line, but significant lines, and give a little bit of background. That's right. The goal is that these are somewhat short books, meant to be read in three or four hours, get a good overview of some topic. The grievances sum up the reasons why Americans were seeking independence from Great Britain. I think they haven't reached the level of remembrance of the lofty language of the earlier sections of the Declaration, probably because some of them are contemporary to the time. Some of them seem a little nitpicky. Yeah, the grievances were very specific to their time. Some of them are important for us today, and we all remember the one that we learned back in school about uh, no taxes without representation. For imposing taxes on us without our consent. Um, That one actually shows up as number 17 quite far down the list. 
halfway through the list. Yeah, before that, you got he has erected a multitude of new offices. He has kept among us in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to civil power. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. You know, if order means anything, and you have to figure they're arranging it in some kind of order of, of how, you know, egregious these are, um, taxation is pretty down there, you know, considering the, the importance it has today. Yeah, I was surprised at how how much Parliament and, and the King were injecting themselves into American, uh, the American life. Um, they definitely were, you know, 3,000 miles away. They weren't really just sitting there having daily conversations with the colonists. And yet here they are, you know, waltzing in saying, in all cases whatsoever, we get to dictate everything that goes on in your lives and you better like it or else we're going to send a whole bunch of nice soldiers in red coats over to make sure that you agree with us. Yeah, and some blue-coated Hessians and green-coated loyalist militia, hostile Indian tribes on the northwest border as well. They're not all about taxes. Um, I think that comes out of the stamp tax. That's why the in the Boston Tea Party, them being so uh, such prominent events that you get you hear so much about it. But there's a lot about say free trade, about limiting what colonists can do, who they can sell to, what they can make. Well, there was the uh, number sixteen about world trade for cutting our trade off with the rest of the world. The colonists didn't have a lot of control over how they could trade if if England decided, you know, they were going to be a boss about it. So for example, some local tradesmen might want to make wool and sell it to other colonies or or make hats out of that wool and transport it either within the colonies or overseas and England could d- actually did just up and say, "No, I'm afraid you can't do that without our permission." And you can't even put those hats on a horse and take them to the next colony because that constitutes international trade, and we're going to control that. So important. And when you think about why there was a revolution, I see questions on the Internet sometimes. Why do the Americans even rebel? Maybe it could have been settled peacefully. I mean, perhaps it could have, but things like this were, were choking colonists. It's funny. We don't think of, like, we fought the American Revolution for free trade especially in the wake of today's debates and and if we value globalism and free trade. But America was struggling to be a globalist country. And then there's just an old-fashioned anti-regulation argument. Yeah, I think that plays right into the concerns of a lot of modern Americans that all this regulation and all these you know government workers are are taking over our lives and not letting us run our businesses and you know deal with our schools and um, it it wasn't exactly the same back then. They they were definitely really eating out their lives, right? They, all these soldiers would come in and and say, "We're going to force this upon you." We don't have the soldiers standing there there today, but I think our American um, personality is that that we're always on guard against that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, rendering the military independent of and superior to the civil power, cutting off trade dissolving representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of people. These are all grievances that deal with tyranny. 
you know, you can see why we're set up with a government, a lot of checks and balances as we have. Anything else strikes you in these grievances as really being in line with the politics of today? The the naturalization one, of course, has has been the talk of the town since Trump became president, uh, where King George was preventing uh, them from populating their states, not only expanding the geography of their of their colonies, but also allowing people to come in. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. Yeah, number seven. You're telling me we fought a war and it came to muskets over preserving immigration? England had rules about how quickly you could become a citizen once you were living within the boundaries of the empire. And a lot of these colonies were competing with each other to say, hey, if you come over and move into our colony, we'll grant you quicker citizenship, which, of course, England rejected that. But then they tried the tactic that, well, maybe you can't be a British citizen right away, but you can you can be a, a, perhaps a New Jersey citizen even faster. And the important part of that was that because of the mercantile restrictions on, on trade among the different countries, foreigners who lived in the British Empire couldn't always sell their wares to different areas, different parts of the empire or outside the empire. And becoming citizens was a way that they could expand their business beyond just their little community. Yeah, I mean, of course, in these discussions, it's necessary to say, I mean, the country wasn't well-populated, almost every colony was encouraging immigration strongly, advertising for it, uh, giving land in some cases to travelers. I will say, though, sometimes, you know, it it came in through the seaport, but many cities and towns in, a, in America wanted to get the immigration moving past those seaport cities that were already gaining some population and building the wagon road and getting people through Pennsylvania, settling western Pennsylvania, down Virginia, and and into the North Carolina colonies. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if... Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. 
So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. There, there was a differentiation between whether the executive had the power to push these limits or whether the legislature had the power to do that. And I, I've heard a lot of that today in, in the battle over, you know, should we disallow certain people from certain countries from entering America? President Trump will make these statements, executive orders, saying it's going to be this way. Uh, but, of course, the real power to do that was always supposed to be in, in our House as a representation in the Congress. And over the last several decades, there's this back and forth about, well, who really has the power to make these decisions about immigration? Is it the president and his executive branch or is it the Congress? And and divided between the Senate, the Senate and the House of Representatives. And, of course, it was always supposed to be the House of Representatives. That's where the founders wanted all the power. I think some of the founders, I think, for instance, Thomas Paine, James Madison, both wanted one body, one Congress. Uh, other founders wanted uh, Senate to be a check on it. Today we have a very different perspective, almost a King George-like perspective, where the power is in the in the executive and we we focus so much on oh what did he what did he say today or what executive order is ruining our lives today and and it it definitely wasn't the viewpoint of the people back then that the executive would have all this power it was definitely a, a legislative thing is where they wanted to put that power yeah and i think the grievances go to show it there's a number about interrupting legislative sessions or stopping them from what they need to do which indicates the important of the legislature uh, the importance of the legislature in their mind and the constitution really has all bills originating with the legislature money bills originating with that house the people's house um article one again if we think order has anything to do with it why wouldn't order have a little bit to do with it right i mean you know you're writing a document you know you what do you want to do first build a congress first i mean it, it implies something how strong that implication is I wouldn't go too far with, but it implies something. They really wanted the power there. I do think there were a few founders, and I'm thinking about Washington and Madison here in particular, that were none too pleased, say, uh, with the actions of legislatures, with the actions of some of the state legislatures, with the inability of the confederation um, legislatures to take significant action so there's also powers for the executive in that document so that they wouldn't have suffer under the oppression of either an incompetent executive or an incompetent legislative but yeah i think in a tie it went to the legislative for almost all people at those times we've changed and you know i mean it's way too much focus and almost goes without saying on the president of the United States each day. I would have told you that in the beginning of the Obama administration when in 2009, in January or February, when Obama was a superhero uh, that could do no wrong and was going to fix the entire country uh, in a few months. And now I certainly say it when all of the news media is either focused on the positive or negative of the social media that the president is, is using. Let's go back and think about these guys and how they suffered from the tyranny of an executive and then take a, a lesson from that. Um, and the immigration issue is just one of those. I think it's frozen because the legislature hasn't been able to take action. That, that ties directly to 
the early parts of the document that are so focused on natural rights that it is the people and not not even the legislature, but the people themselves that that possess this power granted to them by the creator. And that even if you dissolve a legislature, that power doesn't go away. It was always in the people and it's going to stay there and they get to say what to do. Um, one group that was a strong immigrant group were the Germans and, of course, Scots-Irish as well, which really built America at this time. And it's interesting because the Germans that were here were very pro-independence, the ones that had settled in America, really were, you know, had no love for Great Britain. But King George was related, uh, and then all the Georgian kings were related to the Principality of Hesse, and so he sent German soldiers over, and that shows up in the grievances. It's pretty scary. He was actually bringing over 30,000 of those troops. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny. And that, I think there was a risk there because that was going to complement the 150,000 Germans, um, not just men, but families, that had already settled in, into the Americas uh, throughout the last hundred years since uh, England had opened up immigration to to the various colonies. I think that was a big sticking point. They they had these Germans coming into London earlier, and the Londoners didn't really like these Germans hanging around, so they sent them all over to America. And then they weren't really weren't really happy that Americans were saying, yeah, bring over your Germans. We're going to get super powerful and strong with all these workers. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And I think that there were there were also concerns that, you know, it was proof that England didn't really care about America so much. They weren't even willing to sacrifice their own boys to come over and, and fight us. Um, and also they the mindset was that these German soldiers are willing to sell themselves to the highest bidder. And, you know, another country would come along, offer them a little more money. And then if America could get enough funds, they could send the Germans back over to London and have them attack the country. You know, that's how disloyal they were. And, you know, why why do you think so little of us that you'll send even these, the, the lowest of low to come battle us? Some of them, like, you know, a, a grievance about sending foreign mercenaries to destroy your towns, ravage your communities, we can understand then as in now. A couple of them are a little bit harder to understand, so maybe I wish you would explain it how did something like he has called together legislative bodies at places unusual uncomfortable and distant 
from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with their measures. It's funny to read that one these days. We have such instant access to the entire world. The thought that government is is distant or fatiguing is is kind of funny. That particular grievance had to do with Massachusetts legislature, and it was temporarily moved just four miles from Boston, where it met for a couple of years. And they said, that's just, that's just so much work. That's fatiguing. And then I got moved to Salem for about half a year, which is 15 miles from Boston, which for us is still just a quick 10 or 15 minute drive, depending on how fast you drive. And It's a little antiquated, but I do see in that a warning for future against executive interference, say, with what the legislature needs to do. Now, put that in the context of investigations. Uh, why does a legislator need to do an investigation? Well, because that's how they do their job. How are you going to come up with laws if you don't investigate them? And not having access to information as part of the investigation, blocking that could directly relate to to something akin to what was done with Massachusetts. And for them, you know, that, that was just outlandish that you would put our, our offices that far from home. I don't want to go 15 miles. That's ridiculous. But that was a whole day's journey for them. Yeah, rep- representation was obviously a big issue. It was surprising how much, well, probably natural, how much emphasis they put on their legislatures. Their their judicial systems were all set up by the legislators. Um, in some cases, like in Massachusetts specifically, the, the uh, salary of the governor was set by the legislature. And when they didn't like him, they just revoked his salary and said... <laughs> Try, try to, you know, try to oppose us and, and we won't let you eat for a couple of weeks. A few grievances have to do with not just how government was oppressive, but also a lack of government that the king just kind of ceded his role and left it to no one. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate, immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he is utterly neglected to attend to them. Well, that that was one of the main differences in how they viewed the the legislative role and the executive role. The legislative, the parliament was there, you know, to manage the creation of laws and and the representatives of the people within a society. I mean, I don't think you have to be a constitutional scholar to see that that might be have something to do with um, the take care clause in the constitution. The role of the king was to protect his citizens worldwide, wherever they may be. And they always saw themselves as obedient to King George because he was offering his protection against other countries, against violations of natural rights. They never saw themselves as subservient to the parliament because parliament offers no protection. Parliament only has to do with representation, and they were not represented in their minds. Yeah, I mean, that's always a tough one. I know that uh, some of the critics of those who early on were just criticizing Parliament and not criticizing the king, uh, you know, they, they called that a fig leaf, uh, I, know, I know, argument that really behind it was always a criticism of the king. But some people engaged in that, at least in the early going, uh, the early Congresses. I know, though, in a, in a work like, say, Tom Paine's Common Sense, 
the king is very much the target. So sometimes when I hear that, you know, that, oh, the American patriots were only against Parliament, not against the king. I mean, it's not really true. There was a wide variety of opinion as to who was at fault in that. And the reality of it was probably not known to most Americans who wouldn't study British politics is that Lord North was uh, the Tory prime minister operating in a government very much supported by the king. So they were really were in lockstep at the time that we're talking about. Yeah, they, they kept talking to their British brethren, as they called them, about this isn't only his, for historical reasons that we're associated, but... It's good for trade. It's good for all of us that, that we, you know, have this great relationship. And every time you impose a law on us, you're destroying that relationship. And during the first Congress, two years earlier, they had they had sent a similar list of complaints over to King and Parliament and said, you know, these things are really bothering us. Why don't you stop doing it? And back came a letter that that was kind of flippant and, you know, said, we don't really care what you think, America. We're we're fully endowed with power to to force our way on you, and you just better get used to it. But there were there were people even in the Parliament, representatives in Parliament, who were for the American side and argued very strongly in favor of the American cause. But it it just wasn't enough. Oh, no doubt. You had a member of Parliament wearing continental buff and blue each time he uh, went to Parliament. I just think that simply they were outvoted. Uh, Then and now, Parliament is such a large body. Yeah, we did have friends there, and I'm glad that you brought that up. I was was surprised that one of the grievances has to do with Canada, but they they were upset that, you know, the, the England had come in and said, well, you know, there's all this area, which is like the Ohio River Valley and up into Minnesota and parts of modern day Canada that were officially off limits to the Americans. King and Parliament said, you're not allowed to move into those areas. And then one day they just came along and said, oh, we decided to make this permanent and Canada is going to take it all over. For abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. The colonists were upset, of course, in part because they wanted to move into those areas and they no longer could. But... In a more theoretical plane, they were upset that uh, Canada was a more executive-focused way of looking at things, so their executive branch would assign the roles of legislature and judiciary. And it just freaked out the Americans that so much power was given to the executive, where, on the American perspective, you know, so much power has to be in the legislature. You don't, you don't want a lot in the executive or the judicial. Yeah, I've always known that right up there with taxes, free trade, ability to manufacture iron and other goods, that the proclamation line and the inability of American colonists to expand much past Pittsburgh or into the Ohio Valley where everyone, Washington, others, wanted to go was a key reason for the revolution. And again, this kind of idea that it had to come to blows because you're choking us off and a generation, you know, will be stagnant. What you bring up, which is very interesting, I hadn't realized, is that they were also afraid of having 
this example uh, up north that the British could point to and say, see, Canada, they're playing by the rules that we've set. Why can't you? The grievance also brings up the point of arbitrary government, which was another area that the colonists really struggled with. They they felt that Parliament was just winging it, just making it up, not just Parliament, but the Board of Trade, the British Board of Trade, which would have been under the king's purview, could just on a whim make up some rule that said we're going to force the colonists to behave this way without regard to any of the Constitution or the English Bill of Rights or any of those more essential documents. They could just arbitrarily say this is how it's going to be. What's oft forgotten, I think, is just that idea that at any time in the future, forget about what was going on in the present in those grievances, at any time in the future, if there was not independence, the British could send a governor over any state that it wanted, new offices, require new taxes for American people to pay for it. And very often these governors would come because they paid a sum or they were owed a favor. You know, um, two of our states, uh, just off the top of my head, New York, uh, New Jersey, are named after uh, dukes who got the favor of Charles II. They're good names, so we thank you. But I'd rather, you know, I think uh, I think it would life was more enjoyable in a country that didn't have that threat of lords being sent over and being in charge, you know, arbitrarily. Hey, Tim, thanks for listening to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, and thanks for coming on to talk about your book, Self-Evident. How can people find your book? They can go to the book's website, which is at owanipress.com. Owani is spelled O-W-A-N-I press.com. And it's also available on all the major booksellers like Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And, and what they're going to get with this book is a detailed annotation, right, of the declaration. Yeah, so I go not line by line, but but clause by clause. And I, for those that are based on ideas like Enlightenment ideas, I go to the original sources where Jefferson would have gotten those ideas back, you know, hundreds or even a thousand years earlier. And for the grievances, I look at the historical context, try to find the exact Uh, historical event that would have caused that grievance to be in the document. Thanks for being on the show, Tim. Thank you very much, Bruce. It was a pleasure. Quick reminder about the premium podcast. It can, you know, it really helps the program. We have a good number of people at all levels. We have people that are subscribing at the Friends of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, which is just $2 a month. I have people that are subscribing at the highest level, which is the Cincinnati, which requires a larger investment and really are foundational supporters of the program. And there's steps in between, and you get various benefits as a member of the premium podcast. But the most you know the the biggest benefit is the extra podcast the premium podcast from my history can beat up your politics there's 30 separate content items that we have there that are sometimes extensions of podcasts that are recorded on this channel so for instance 
when we did the impeachment episode, I have on the premium podcast leftovers from impeachment, which is all the stories that I kind of wanted to talk about more, but there is a time limit for any given podcast. And then we have, um, uh, when I talked with Laura Spinney about the Spanish flu of 1918, and I felt like because we had to delve into the politics of medicine a lot, there wasn't room to really get into some of the the stories of 1918 and what happened with that flu. And we do that in the leftovers of the flu cast, um, leftovers of the Spanish flu cast. So, you know, in the in this extra cast, I'm going to be able to talk more. I'm going to provide some interesting insight. Um, for instance, a while back, we did an episode about the emoluments clause and George Washington. Well, in an episode, I talk about the Potomac River and its importance to America. So, if you're really looking for more content, it can be as little as $2 a month and uh, helps out a lot. Thanks for considering. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.